0: welcome to the Questioning Pornography Podcast. This is your host, Lily, and today I'm joined by our guest, Aaron Kennel. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So Aaron Kennel is a social worker from Florida with a primary focus on domestic violence and healthy relationships. He's been doing domestic violence advocacy for many years, and more recently, he began doing social work in schools where he helps teach kids about developing healthy relationships. His social work practice utilizes a feminist perspective. So today, Aaron will be sharing with us that perspective. And he'll also just be sharing his experiences from his social work practice of how he's seen pornography inhibiting healthy relationships and how he's seen it interacting with domestic violence. So Aaron, why don't you start off simply by telling us how you first became interested in the topic of pornography? And maybe when you started realizing how it may be having some negative effects on
1: society. So my relationship with pornography, as strange as that phrase sounds, um, (laughs) started when I was actually a student at a middle school in Florida. And I remember hearing from one of my, or excuse me, hearing about a teacher of mine, Mr. Pines, in seventh grade Um, his mom or grandmother had died. I think it was his mom. And he turned to child pornography Mm. as an outlet, as sort of a, a, quote, therapeutic outlet. It's never therapeutic, but that was the way he coped with that. And I never considered what pornography could do to someone. And again, I was in middle school, so I was still learning about all these different forces that affect us and help us grow or detract from us and help us not grow. And I remember advocating for him at one point (laughs) and saying, hey, you know, police should go after the people who created the content and Mm -hmm. not necessarily the person who consumed it. But i said that not realizing the sort of damage that pornography can do to a person and how Mm -hmm. it can traumatize us and how it can reframe the way we see relationships of any kind. That was my first introduction to porn. My second was actually through video games. There was an old, old video game that is probably still played today called Counter-Strike version 1.6. Back in the day, we all played first person shooters on computers because that's all there was. And unfortunately I was exposed to pornography on that game because there's a little feature where you can insert a photo and then you can quote spray paint it all over uh, objects within the game world. So imagine my sort of shock when I'm playing this game, not thinking about sexuality and not thinking about what a person looks like who's nude. And suddenly I just see pictures of body parts and obscene gestures and acts done to women's bodies. It was a bit traumatizing. So I had those two points, so the two prongs, excuse me, um, that intersected. and. My exposure to pornography from other male teachers, not just Mr. Pines, continued um, as I went up the grade level. Um, next grade level in eighth grade, I heard a story about one of my science teachers named Mr. Wacker, who was caught with pornography on a school computer. And he was no, like removed from the classroom. We no longer saw him. And so we've I've had this sort of, vicarious exposure to pornography from the school side and then the actual exposure from games. And the one experience that really sort of tipped my, my likeness as far as being against pornography was a social studies teacher in ninth grade who often gloated about his love for pornography and even went to explain how he thinks women who are sexually assaulted in the act should just give in because Mm. it's a few moments of fun. It was really disgusting. And I really wish I could go back in time and advocate for myself and advocate against this teacher for saying such a thing.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: And so for so many years, that sort of ate away at me, but I had no template, no sort of tool set or toolbox to figure out how to combat it or talk about it or become aware of such topics it was almost like I was just shocked and I was incapable of moving. Um, so my my exposure into doing something about pornography started when I was an undergraduate at NCF. And I started getting involved in um, classes that dealt with like anti-racism or talking about patriarchy in terms of older sort of Southern antebellum periods. And I was given a framework to understand the relationship between, for example, white men, white women, white men, and black men, and white men, and black women, and so forth, and how it was called patriarchy. And when I learned that word, it stuck to me so hard because I've been exposed to so many images and sort of imitations of power, whether it was through the teacher saying something or being caught with pornography or being in video game spaces where there were, there were pictures posted everywhere of some sort of power. And then I met up with other feminist, like-minded people and peers at the university. And I was so shocked when I saw the word, um, uh, you know, at the patriarchy, and I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. <laughs> and so I went to them and uh, it didn't occur to me in any sense that pornography was a feminist issue. Pornography was a patriarchal issue. And so I bridged those gaps and that's when I started being able to formulate how pornography affects us. And what I ended up doing with all of this sort of like frameworks was propel it into my work as, or at least my studies into social work and my then work as a current school social worker where I end up intervening or preventing the use of pornography um, and essentially advocating for healthy relationships. And that's really what, that's the tool I'm using now to combat pornography is building healthy relationships.
0: Cool, very cool, awesome. Well, I'd love to hear uh, some more about your work as a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You Feel free to talk about how that kind of education healthy relationships fits in. Um, Actually, maybe we can do that first and then I'll have a few more follow-up questions for you after. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely.
1: So the work with healthy relationships, um, what pornography does is it gives us a bunch of different models and imitations and scripts about what to expect when it comes to intimacy and even romance. In other words, what pornography does is it ties power and sexuality together. So it says, for example, Men should be accustomed to being aggressive in sexual encounters, and women should be accustomed to receiving aggression during sexual encounters. Healthy relationships, for example, say none of that flies, period. Instead, healthy relationships are not just about boundaries or consent. It's about desire and understanding how desire fits in and how desire is not the same thing as power. And desire means that you want this person and they want you, right? It's an equal and mutual exchange of feelings and emotions. Pornography is not sex. Hmm. It's not mutual. It's not intimate. It's not emotional. You don't see emotions on screen or in, in the, in the, for example, the pictures. And you don't, for example, see the meaning that's being built between the two people who have that exchange and that, sense of connection that's the missing piece is that sense of meaning interesting if you're just have if you're just watching a video that's people just want to have sex you're not in it for the meaning you're in it for the examination of bodily fluid and body part exchanges there's nothing meaningful in that and that's the humiliation piece because it turns two individuals especially the woman usually in this frame that they are just simply a body part to be examined and humiliated. Right, okay, okay. That's really
0: interesting. Um, it makes me think of something that, so I, I run this podcast with my um, co-host Alexander, and mm-hmm. one of the things that he said before, which kind of made me think about the way pornography frames sex, or in your case, quote unquote yeah. sex, right? If you think it's, <laughs> it's not not really sex, is just he 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 talked about essentially how there's this spectrum when it comes to sexual intercourse, I guess, like there's Mm -hmm. making love, right. Mm -hmm. There's having sex and then there's like effing someone, right. I don't want to swear on the podcast,
1: but but yeah. yeah.
0: And what I noticed when I started, um, going and reading the titles on all like the most popular porn sites it's all just effing someone so-and-so yeah. so-and-so so-and-so gets effed right there, there's yeah. there's certainly no making love there's certainly no even just having sex right mm-hmm. it's always so-and-so gets effed so-and-so
1: gets effed right it's an advertisement of watching someone being humiliated yeah That's what it, like when you say hey uh you know Big blondie is getting effed. Like that's mm-hmm. a humiliation. That's not like, hey, this person's really like finding a meaningful connection. <laughs> you, right. You wouldn't put those two together at all. Like, there's no way. There's no. There's no semantic tool that would help you navigate from meaning to humiliation. Right,
0: and then, and then sometimes the language is even more explicitly humiliating yeah. in terms of so-and-so gets destroyed, so-and-so, you know oh, what yeah. I mean? But, or
1: she um, totally regrets it.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, I've seen that too. Yeah. Um, why
1: am I laughing? It's horrible. Um, no, I think we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're laughing and smiling because we're just like, this is embarrassing. to sort mm-hmm. of have to, because what, <laughs> embarrassing in the sense because we're humans. And sexuality is really important to all of us, whether we're asexual or demisexual or just heterosexual. Um, and it's embarrassing because pornography doesn't define any of those things. It doesn't define our humanness. It doesn't define our wholeness, our sense of belonging, our sense of being. And that's what I see when I work with the students: is that sense of wholeness kind of gets destroyed. But they're not sure how to handle this trauma-laden imagery that they're getting.
0: Right. That That's exactly where I was going to go next, is bringing it back to mm-hmm. the students. Because when I think about, especially when you think about in in most cases, kids aren't really getting sufficient sex set. Um, mm-hmm. And so their primary input for where they're learning about sex is usually pornography, right? Yeah. and and oftentimes kids will be exposed to pornography before their Mm -hmm. first sexual experience and so if from the from the very beginning what they're learning is this is like sex is someone getting effed someone getting destroyed someone you know then then as you talk about trying to educate kids on healthy relationships i can only imagine how many barriers there are in place to that um well thank you so much erin for sharing with us your thoughts on the healthy relationships aspect I'd love to now transition to the other half of what you've been focusing on for your social work practice. So domestic violence. Can you share with us how you've seen pornography interacting with domestic violence? And in particular, if you have any anecdotes you'd like to share from your clients' lives, I, I would love to hear those. Dear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was an intern at Help Now Osceola County, which is in Florida, I, was, I became the first male outreach advocate there in their entire agency history. So it was a really cool opportunity. And I explicitly studied about sort of like what other agencies and advocates have experience with regard to pornography and domestic violence. Um, and one of my own cases I had is one particular survivor of mine experienced a lot of sort of microaggressions and dismissive behavior and words. And this survivor's abuser would point to pornography as an expectation mm. for, for what he expected from her. And the acts included things like using like painful positions or painful items and toys or doing something that's purposefully humiliating and on that way or on their journey to that circumstance i should say the survivor explained that she felt like her sexuality like her her actual valid sexual desires were stripped away from her she could not in any case communicate what she wanted in a relationship, like she was groomed by the abuser to not speak of her own feelings, and she said to me, and "I'll never forget this." But she said that she felt like she was never able to be her full self around him; it was mm-hmm. taken away from her. And that was how I realized pornography and domestic violence really, really links itself well together, because both both sort of institutions of power are built to take away agency from women.
0: Okay, interesting. That's that's it reminds me of a lot of anecdotes I've heard as well and some of them were mm-hmm. featured in in our first podcast episode actually just talking about women or or young girls in many cases mm-hmm. you know who have their partners showing them pornography. And saying, basically, this is what I want you to do, right? Mm -hmm. And and I remember that one thing that stood out to me from one of the young girls I was interviewing is she was thinking, because she was made very uncomfortable by all of this and feeling like there was this standard she had to live up to. And then one of the things she said was just, and I was just thinking, what what's wrong with me? Do I just not like sex or something? You know? Ooh. And I was like, wow, yeah. like that's that's crazy. So when you speak about um the relationships kind of ceasing to be about that mutual desire and being more about mm. this this expectation that's placed on the women mm. from pornography, I can definitely hear uh that echoing in other anecdotes I've heard as well. Mm. So so thank you yeah. for um for mentioning that. Um Now, one of the things I wouldn't mind asking you about is, so you've worked with women in um, domestic, uh, uh, sorry, I guess. Domestic
1: violence advocacy roles. Right, in domestic
0: violence advocacy, thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you're also working with students on healthy relationships. Do you see any kind of overlap between the two in terms of the kids being primed towards aggression as well? And can you kind of see a through line going from unhealthy expectations inspired from porn in like those early adolescent stages and how that could kind of translate to domestic violence early on?
1: Yeah, there, there is a lot of qualitative analysis in this regard. Um, one of the things I teach everyone about working with teenagers is the fact that teenagers being rebellious from our viewpoint and they're struggling, but what we don't accept is that they're struggling with culture mm. and trying to become members of culture when perhaps they don't want to be because some cultural norms seem outlandish or even sexist or even uh, just misogynistic in a lot of ways. So it's a difficult transition for a lot of students. And what happens during the transitionary period is I've seen students who, who want to be exactly who they are and they know who they are, that they may not be able to communicate. The problem is parents, adults, social media, media, pornography, they communicate things better. So they give off sort of signals about who to be. And it's that struggling point between the two that happens. And what happens thereafter is teenagers, and this goes even way back to elementary school grades where someone's in kindergarten, first, second, third, or fourth or fifth grade, they get primed for accepting pornography as a, no, as a normal sort of way of behaving in a sexual encounter. And because relationships think, a lot of cultural views on relationships tend to think that women are more submissive than men mm-hmm. or rather submissive to men, that's how pornography exposure leads into domestic violence is that it says that you are really not allowed to speak up and speak out about these things that are bothering you that are traumatic.
0: I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, I think too, and and when, when we're talking about, especially with young girls with their first Mm -hmm. or early sexual experiences, they, you know, when someone's kind of nervous or whatever, and it's like the first time they're kind of experiencing this, I can imagine how it would be especially difficult for them to kind of assert their own boundaries when they don't don't even really know yet what to expect or what this is supposed to be like, right? And so if they have this guy who's been primed by pornography to think that this is what sex is supposed to be like. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, by the way, like, this is what sex is supposed to be like, do this. And I can see that even being harder for them to kind of assert their boundaries in that way. So, so yeah. yeah. And then if that, if that gets conditioned in them, do they ever kind of break out of that? Or does that extend throughout their it, adult life? Right. It
1: mm-hmm. extends throughout their adult life. Prama um, doesn't have an age limitation. Hmm. And so when you have these sort of experiences, like your first sexual experience is more about someone controlling you, like that's going to lead to more accepting, not really accepting, but more expecting of dominant behaviors and control. Right. I've seen different kinds of genres of pornography, like teen porn. Mm -hmm. And, that one troubles me the most because then I'm thinking about teens who think this is acceptable, that you could potentially be groomed by an actual adult male. I right. <laughs> think this is acceptable sort of sexual sexuality, which might lead to things like being trafficked or being assaulted by, um, uh, a family member and not knowing what to say and think it perhaps might be normal or acceptable. Um, I know one of the more popular genres is is what do they call like anal yeah, I called anal pornography or something like anal that. Anal sex, yeah. Yeah, anal sex, right. And so that is another acceptable thing that I've also worked with survivors where they expressed to me, hey, like I thought I was I thought I was going to like anal sex, but I really hated it, but I didn't want to upset my boyfriend, husband, etc. So I went with it. And so that language is what grooms us into what we should expect. If that makes sense,
0: right? Does make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. And and on the note of the teen genre, actually, because I have noticed mm-hmm. as well that that's very very popular. I I've almost it's it's difficult for me to almost decide to what extent to be concerned about that i'm hugely concerned about grown men or or grown women for that matter mm-hmm. watching teen pornography and fantasizing about in in effect having pedophilic tendencies right yeah. then when i also think about that there's a growing amount of kids being exposed mm-hmm. to pornography which obviously i don't want to happen but that that is the reality more and more kids are watching pornography i almost can't blame them for wanting to watch People their own age, as opposed to as opposed right. to adults, right? Mm-hmm. So on the teen genre, because I I actually was never a consumer of pornography, and so one of the challenges for me and mm-hmm. kind of figuring out what kind of content is out there is I have to just just depend on the research and what other people are telling mm-hmm. me, and sometimes I go onto pornography sites with and just like look at the titles, and I use um, mm-hmm. an image blocking uh, software so I don't Perhaps. have to see. Yep. like the thumbnails or anything because I I don't want to watch it right yeah um but Uh when we're talking about the teen genre do you happen to know is it mostly teen on teen activity we're looking at or is it mostly adult to teen activity I know there's certainly a lot of titles that um that make it explicit that we're talking about some kind of pedophilic yeah to teen but
1: mm -hmm. one of the more important words that I keep hearing and reading about in research is the word novelty Mm -hmm. um so in teen pornography, it is not really teen on teen, it's, it's adult on teen. And the reason why I bring up the word novelty is because for the consumer to buy into the product, you have to kind of agree to the novelty that you're an adult watching them have sex with a teenager. The exotic nature of that idea is what brings people to watch teen pornography. So it's a really really sad state of affairs, a kind of media that wants to almost glamorize taking advantage of someone who may not have the sort of communication skills for boundaries and speaking for their desires and the ability to say no.
0: Right, makes sense, yeah. I'm going to have to find a way to check on the teen genre and this question of whether it's mostly adult on teen or not, because I do think just given the fact that I've, I've seen many titles that advertise it is adult on teen, but then many that just say teen, I they're clearly okay with advertising that it's adult on teen. So I feel like there's probably also a lot of teen on teen out there in the titles that don't explicitly mention that, which of course is still concerning because yes, there would be some teens watching it, but there's also gonna be grown men or, or grown women watching it. So either way, it's concerning. This is bringing to mind another kind of extreme genre. I've been seeing a lot of on porn sites and it's making me think of another question I want to ask you actually. When you work with domestic violence, is that specifically mm-hmm. within a marriage or is it sometimes a parent to child kind of violence as well?
1: So domestic violence, uh, here in the United States, it's defined as any sort of intimate or familial relationship-based violence. So domestic violence is a big umbrella term. And then when it comes to like specifically violence between married couples or dating couples that are adults, it's intimate partner violence. Okay. Um, So then there's also just uh, like family domestic violence between a parent and and a child. So the one thing I haven't worked on as much as um, the others is I haven't really worked on family violence. I've mostly worked on intimate partner and dating violence. Okay, okay, so that's the area that I've specified in.
0: Okay, interesting, because I, I I would have had many thoughts about how pornography could be potentially influencing family violence as well, especially when we look yes. at the rise in popularity mm-hmm. of this incest genre or mm-hmm. this kind of step incest genre you know step dad yeah. stepchild and so that mm-hmm. really concerns me about like what why are we why are we encouraging people to fantasize yeah. about you know destroying their stepdaughter or or sometimes just daughter right mm. um and, mm-hmm.
1: and if and essentially like my experience in like for example um the way in which pornography shows up in families has only started because i've become a social worker a school social worker now okay so So it's a new experience for me. And the other two are obviously ones I've worked on for many years. Right. So I had a case at one of my elementary schools where one one student has been exposed to a lot of pornography. Like his dad would show him pornography.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. And so... That influences, for example, um, essentially grooming him to becoming, quote, a man in the patriarchal and pornographic framework. Right. But it's also traumatizing because this student is in elementary school he doesn't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So elementary understand- school? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah.
0: gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, so it's difficult for the student to wrap around what's been going on, why he's being shown this. And, um, and I had a case, uh, I want to say back in 2019, I worked with an adult who has kids of his own. And he was showing signs of microaggressions in the workplace, a lot of aggressive sort of cruel wording and behavior towards women in a workplace And we started talking and just getting to know, me getting to know him and like him getting used to my style and him slowly feeling accepted and understood. And he revealed to me that A, he was exposed to pornography really early on by his dad. And B, as an adult, he's having challenges with having ancestral feelings towards like his stepdaughter or daughter. I forgot which one, but it's one of those two. Okay. So you can see how he went from one extreme or exp- one exposure to another sense of exposure as not just being a consumer, but also a proliferator of certain acts. Right, right.
0: And I mean, that makes total sense to me. I don't know what type of porn you'd be watching, but the incest genre, at least these days, just impossible Um, to avoid it's it's on any time I go Mm -hmm. again to check the titles on the porn sites it's on every single page if you flick through right so Mm -hmm. so I could Mm -hmm. imagine how how if he was exposed to pornography early on and that kind of um those incestuous relationships were were marketed to him as arousing basically from a very Mm -hmm. early age I I can totally imagine how that would affect him once he had a daughter and that's that's one of the things I'm most concerned about especially when we yeah. consider that we're so early I mean I know pornography in some form has been around in for a while but like these these tube sites with all these crazy different genres have not been around oh. for that long and so when we think about where are all the kids who've grown up with pornography gonna be when they're all adults and like as we lose more and more mm. generations to this kind of content what's gonna happen yeah. to our society essentially right? yeah
1: but, um mm-hmm. like is incest going to be normalized?
0: Like <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay, are there a couple of things you said earlier that I want to return to? Uh-huh. You talked about, so we've talked a lot about pornography traumatizing the women, um, maybe if they're in abusive relationships or mm-hmm. or however. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the ways in which pornography can traumatize the consumer? Mm-hmm. It, you mentioned that as well, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Briefly, mm-hmm.
1: yep. Yeah, so... In a sense, if I go back to my experience as a boy playing a video game, I ended up becoming a consumer just because it was right in front of me and my computer screen. Right. Um, It affected me because I just wasn't sure what I was seeing. It became extremely like convoluted and not very clear. And What it did for me initially was it it tied humiliation and sexuality together in the same vein. So there was a sense of acceptance I had when I was younger that these certain acts, um, for example, might be something that someone wants. Thankfully, I did not get into a situation when I was old enough that I had those scripts in mind. But men as consumers absolutely try to use these scripts. And there's all sorts of issues that, that come up for consumers, especially adult men. They might have erectile dysfunction. Um, it can affect relationships, especially if a man is consuming and like, their girlfriend or wife or partner is witnessing that. And I was an advocate for another excuse me, another survivor who was dealing with a husband that was consuming porn. Um, the survivor I was counseling at the time felt like she couldn't connect with him. So it breaks down that connection. And what happens is <laughs> a consumer is, is consumed and seeing sex all the time and everything. Hmm. So for example, when I spoke with the survivor one time, she came in laughing. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And So we sat down and we kind of up, she updated me on what was going on. And she said, I was on a phone call with one of the other survivors I met at the group therapy session. And I told the survivor how, like, I absolutely love your counseling style. And she said to this survivor on the phone with her abuser listening in another room. And she said, I quote, Aaron goes so deep. And for the abuser, he heard the word deep and all he could think about was the sexual implication or rather the power implication and pornography behind that. Oh, gosh. And, yeah. So he walked, he got up out of his chair, I think, and he walked over to her and he said, sounds like you're sleeping with your therapist. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And so the survivor and I, we just laughed about this, but then I the more that my laughter subsided, the more I went, Oh my gosh, this is this is horrendous. Like if you hear the word deep and you're suddenly you're just transfixed on some sexual imagery, but that's pretty pretty telling about what consumption can do. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. It changes
1: your entire sort of mental framework and how you receive imagery.
0: Totally. And then and then what are the effects of that on on women as well, right? If yeah, if all right. our men are primed to to see everything through a hypersexualized lens, yeah. then how does that affect the way that women are viewed and what's expected of women and stuff like that? Well, that brings us to the end of our interview with Aaron Kennel. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you do enjoy these conversations and want to support us in being able to continue hosting them, I invite you to consider supporting us on Patreon. I've dropped a link for that in the show notes. And once again, we hope that you will come back for future episodes. Please consider subscribing and have a great day.